Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. So how do we begin to decipher and understand the ongoing tragic, murderous events in Palestine and Israel? Are there alternate ways of viewing the current moment, something beyond the mainstream news coverage? What might the longer history of the conflict tell us? Joining us today to offer her informed take on a broad range of questions and concerns is the longtime Middle East observer freelance journalist, activist, and former UW lecturer in Middle East Studies, um, Jennifer Lowenstein. Welcome, Jennifer. It's nice to have you back to WRT. Thanks. It's nice to be back. Jennifer, let's start with your overall take on the current situation. At some level, it appears to me anyway, it clearly appears that the Israeli state has taken advantage afforded it by the Hamas attack on October 7th to move forward what you and many others have long described as an ongoing strategy of separation, some would call apartheid, of dispossession, and ultimately expulsion or worse of the Palestinian Arabs. Let's start with your take on Hamas. How do you describe the organization? Well, Hamas is a resistance organization It is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. It was founded in late um, 1987, early 1988. And most people by now know that it was in part funded by Israel because at the time, Israel looked for a group or an organization that could be a counterweight to uh, the PLO. And so this was... Hamas appeared at an appropriate time, and its its presence was exploited by Israel. It is religious national. It's a religious nationalist resistance group. Hamas stands for Harakat al Mukawima al Islamia, which simply means the Islamic resistance movement. And you know, on on a political spectrum, it's off on the right. It's on the right wing. It's not an organization that I particularly like. It has openly advocated violent methods of resistance in the past. It has used terrorism, such as in suicide bombings against civilians in the past, which I completely oppose. And um, you know, it's a fairly closed organization in many ways. I did have the... Um, the the occasion to interview three of the top leaders of Hamas in the past, uh, Abdulaziz Rantisi, one of the founders, Ghazi Hamad, who is a spokesperson for Hamas today, and Mahmoud Zahar, who is, or at least was, the foreign minister. And I can't say that I was terribly impressed with the organization. As I said, again, it's very repressive within Gaza. But clearly, we've seen another side of it since October 7th. Take that further. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I see both. I see the attack that Hamas planned and carried out and Israel's response as two very different things with different motives. When Hamas broke through the, the separation barrier in Gaza and went on this operation into Israel, I feel relatively certain that things had reached a point in the Gaza Strip where members of Hamas were were saying to each other, how long are we going to sit back and take this? The operation that they carried out, which they call Al-Aqsa Flood, um, was you know, what they told us was it was in retaliation for uh, settler incursions onto the Temple Mount and constant 
uh, raids into the West Bank, into cities like Janine and Nablus. The operation was a very sophisticated military operation. It was certainly planned over the course of many months, if not years. It very likely had at least indirect support from Hezbollah in Lebanon. And it was a way of Hamas basically saying, we're not going to take this anymore. And we have to, I have to say, they should be given credit for forever changing the status quo on the ground in Israel-Palestine. Um, the fact that it became also a, an occasion for 1,200 civilians to be killed, I think is very unfortunate. It's inexcusable. Civilians are always protected and should be. Um, however, if it had me, if it had remained a military operation only, it would have been, you know, something to celebrate. I, I call it Operation Prison Break. And if people know the 75-year history of, of, of the Gaza Strip and of Palestine in general, it should be absolutely no surprise to anyone that there was this kind of explosion this time in a very controlled way. I want to go back to something you started with, and that is the, the early moments of Hamas in the late 80s, its, its founding and, and development. Uh, you talked about it as, as a counter to the PLO. An Islamist um, movement counter to what was, what was then, of course, a secular nationalist movement? Well, yeah, the idea wasn't that the Israelis particularly wanted an Islamic nationalist movement. It's that they wanted anything to uh, under, undermine the strength and power of the PLO, because the PLO was at the time unchallenged. It was very popular uh, within Palestine, among di diaspora Palestinians and many others, and it had a certain amount of strength. And the Israelis were interested in undermining that strength and in causing dissension within its ranks and causing division amongst pa Palestinians in Palestinian society. And so um, Hamas came along and it was exploited as such. Let's talk about another factor uh, leading up to this uh, move by Hamas. That is the increasing normalization of relations between Israel and the neighboring uh, Arab regimes, and quite possibly what that uh, will continue to mean for the Palestinian cause. Well, I think, you know, if, if we can try to put ourselves in the shoes of people living in Gaza and the West Bank, watching the normalization of relations between uh, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, uh, potentially Saudi Arabia, <clears throat> It looks as if the Arab world, much of the Arab world, has come to accept Israel, to want to be part of, a, of, a, of an anti-Iranian uh, alliance, to get gigantic defense contracts. And how this translated for Palestinians was basically the Palestinian issue is, is being wiped off the map, and, and that's not good. Hamas succeeded in showing the world that the Palestinian issue is not going away. And I think that's very important. I don't think that their operation was timed or, uh, you know, was devised simply to throw a wrench into these normalization agreements. I don't think that was their underlying motive at all. I think their motive was basically, basically to say, we are not going to be living like this forever, and we have to be taken seriously. In other words, the whole issue of Palestine and the Palestinians and the ongoing oppression and dispossession of the Palestinians is not going to be taken off the map. We're going to keep it there. And they they succeeded very well. I wanted to say also that Israel's response to this was ha, has many different angles. 
I mean, yes, there was an immediate response, which was to bomb Gaza. But we have to look at a couple of things. Netanyahu and previous governments had basically accepted Hamas's rule in the Gaza Strip as a good thing. Why? Because Hamas could perpetually be portrayed as a violent terrorist organization, and that, of course, is continuing. And as such, it gave Israel the excuse never to, to go ahead with any kind of negotiations on Palestinian statehood. So Hamas became very convenient for Israel. We'll keep it there. We'll, every few years, we're going to go into Gaza and quote-unquote mow the lawn, which is a euphemism for carrying out a few massacres and destroying some of the infrastructure. Every few years, this was done. Usually, after Hamas kept to a ceasefire and Israel provoked it, there's a record, long record going back to show this, and so again, Hamas was very convenient. You know, we don't need to move ahead with any kind of negotiations because we're not going to negotiate with a terrorist organization. And the Palestinian Authority, of course, is nothing more than a collaborator with the Israeli security uh, apparatus. The other thing I think we have to look at with Hamas is that its operation, the Israeli response to it is twofold. On the one hand, it's a, a quote-unquote natural reaction to go after a group that has just attacked your country. I mean, the fact is, Hamas are, these people are living in an occupied, a territory that's occupied by Israel. So under international law, all of the screams of this is self-defense are, compl are completely false. Israel cannot defend itself from a territory it occupies and from people who are living under that occupation. They can't. So what they're doing is nothing to do with self-defense. Israel is now using Al-Aqsa flood as a pretext to do the next best thing after keeping Hamas at bay, and that is to carry on with a uh, punishment of the entire society within Gaza and to to try to erase it literally through bombing to destroy Gaza so that it's to pulverize it so that it's no longer inhabitable and to carry out a whole system of ethnic cleansing which we know it would love to do by sending the Palestinians of Gaza into the Sinai desert that's been a, rejected by uh, Biden and Blinken, it's been rejected by lots of, of states, but I, I have to wonder what on earth their, their plan is. They've already managed to get Palestinians out of the north of Gaza, and the attack on the hospitals should be seen as part of this. And for those who have been cl paying close attention, leaflets were dropped on villages to the east of Han Yunus yesterday. Han Yunus is in the south where Palestinians had been told they had to go. Anyone living in the north was told they have to evacuate to, this, to the southern strip. Han Yunus is in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. These leaflets were basically being dropped on villages and, or, uh, and uh, areas to the east of the city telling those people to evacuate and move west. To me, that there's, there's no more proof necessary to show that Israel's plan is ultimately ethnic cleansing, if not worse. I do not like to use the word genocide freely because I think it's, it's overused, but there are definitely genocidal intentions in this policy, in this, in these actions. You know, Jennifer Lonestein, I'd like to stay with the broader regional context for just one moment. Uh, that is, some have portrayed Hamas as a surrogate for Iran. Uh, what's your take on that? What do you see as Iranians' role in all this? 
Well, I think what what we have in the Middle East now is is something called the axis of resistance that does include Hamas, Hezbollah in Lebanon, certain groups in Syria, Iranian-backed groups in Iraq, and Iran. I'm sure that Iran has given more than moral support to Hamas. They've given them a lot of money. The relationship between Iran and Hamas has not always been great. I mean, it's, it's been up and down. But yes, I mean, Iran does support Hamas. It, it applauded the operation, as did Hezbollah and a number of other groups. So, you know, up to a point, we have to see this as, as part of that. Uh, the, this attack is part of this, of an action by the axis of resistance. Again, you're listening to uh, Middle East observer Jennifer Lowenstein. We're talking about the Palestine-Israeli, the current stage of the ongoing decades-long uh, conflict. Jack tells me that we do have a caller. Hello, Dan, you're on the air. Hi. I've been calling Tammy Baldwin's office because someone some along the line suggested that there's something to do to oppose this genocide and basically uh, to oppose her unconditional support of Israel's slaughter in Gaza and have been met with nothing but her continued complicity. I should have known better. I knew better than to write or call Joe Biden's White House as his being the number one recipient of Israel lobby money during his three and a half decades as senator informs his complicity. So what? That leaves me the option of speaking my opposition within the confines of a very slanted, suppressive mass media, Wart certainly being a notable exception. Um, in a nutshell, what to do to try to mitigate the damage? Well, personally, I, I spend much more time with popular movements than I do dealing with government officials. I find it so frustrating to try to get through to Congress people and senators that I, I, you know, I send a few letters, you know, I sign petitions, but I don't waste my time very much on these individuals. It's a personal call. I mean, obviously other people can do that. But the reason I'm saying this is because 70% of the American public right now is supporting uh, the Palestinians, um, supporting, or I should say, opposing what Israel is doing in the Gaza Strip. I mean, people who know me know that I go back 25, 30 years on this issue. You know, 25 years ago, to see the kind of popular demonstrations that are happening across the world and in the United States was unthinkable. What's happening today is, is very encouraging. And, you know, seeing uh, protest after protest, sit-ins by JVP, huge uh, pro-Palestinian demonstrations in New York and DC and Los Angeles. I mean, this is very encouraging. And I, I want to say that, you know, it's not the best analogy, but it, but it works. Protests against the Vietnam War began in people's living rooms and took years to grow into a mass movement that over the course of, you know, again, of years, finally pushed, helped push the, the United States out of Vietnam. We have to look at this similarly. Our actions are not going to have an effect tomorrow. But in the long term, we've already seen an amazing shift in popular opinion. And I think the momentum is now with us and that continuing to appear, whether in demonstrations and letters to the editor and sit-ins, you name it, I think that that is what will ultimately change U.S. policy not lobbying individual senators and congresspeople. I wouldn't say don't do that. Sure, do it. I mean, it depends on you. But I think the mass movement that is building right now is extremely impressive. 
Again, you're listening to Jennifer Lowenstein. We're talking about the, Palestine, the current stage of the Palestine-Israel conflict. You can give us a call if you wish at if you wish to join the conversation with an observation, a question, a comment, that number is 608-256-2001. Jennifer, I'd like to return back to the Israeli agenda because uh, there's so much going on other than uh, the d- desire to, or the expressed desire to completely destroy Hamas. Uh, well, you know, that is patently false. I mean, I hope I made that clear. I'm sorry? That is, that is so patently false. I'm not what you're saying, but the fact that Israel keeps saying its, its goal is to wipe out Hamas, that's not its goal. It is precision bombing an entire society in the Gaza Strip. It's not precision bombing Hamas, or we wouldn't have nearly 12,000 people dead, and probably much more than that, considering how many people are, are under the rubble, you know. So really, this is, a, this is Israel's attempt to destroy an entire society. They, they'll never get rid of Hamas. You don't wipe out an idea. And if anything, the, these kinds of bombings and attacks, they build people's defiance. They build people's anger and resistance. If the Israelis haven't learned that after 75 years, they're never going to learn it. There, of course, has been a mainstream media fixation on the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It goes along with, you know, the great men leaders kind of look at the, the news, at history, and so on. Um, he's the leader of the Likud party. But the current government is comprised of a right-wing coalition of seven parties. It's the most right-wing government in Israeli history. Tell us what you, what you can about some of these parties and their leaders, some of whom, of course, sit well to the right of Netanyahu and presently occupy key ministries. Well, there's a lot. A lot has been made of two ministers in particular, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich. Both of them are far right-wing Knesset members. Uh, Gvir is a settler and a thug. Basically, I mean, he's a thug and what he's been doing is inciting Israelis and inciting settlers as much as possible. He's he's a Kahanist. He keeps a picture of uh, Baruch Goldstein in his living room. For our listeners listeners not familiar, uh, what are Kahanists? Well, Meyer Kahana was the uh, spokesman for the Kach party back in the 80s, 70s and 80s in Israel, which was a deeply racist party that advocated violence, the expulsion of the Palestinians completely out of the biblical land of Israel. Um, and it was the, the Kach party was banned by the Knesset, um, which was in a way a bit of a joke because Ben Gvir and Smotrich might as well be card-carrying members of Kach. They both advocate the same policies. The Palestinians basically have no right to be in Judea and Samaria. That's how they call the West Bank. And they're the constant raids and attacks by settlers into Palestinian villages and cities. They're supported by the government, which, yes, is one of the most right-wing in, in Israeli history, is the most right-wing in Israeli history, but I think it's mistaken to focus on this government. Look, I was, you know, reading about the 1982 Israeli siege of Beirut in, you know, again, that's 40, 41 years ago. Hospitals were attacked, civilians were attacked between June 10th, 1982 and August 21st, 1982, Israel managed to kill close to 18,000 civilians. We're getting, we're close to that now in Gaza in less time. And considering the number of dead that we know, we don't know about yet. I mean, this, first of all, the entire scale of this is worse, but you know, the death toll is, it will be at least as high. 
So we're, I think that we're looking at a, not so much change as how things stay the same. You know, whether it was Barak or Olmert or Lapid or Bennett, all of these prime ministers are, are basically, their attitudes are the same when it comes to the occupied territories. Terrorize, isolate, uh, you know, and try to destroy, expel. I mean, so many villages have been expelled. The populations of these, the Palestinian populations of these villages have been expelled over the last year within the West Bank. Bedouin populations, Masafar Yatta, the, the area, the environs out of an area called Yatta. These people are being threatened with expulsion. Expulsion that's been uh, green stamped by the Israeli Supreme Court. So, you know, we're looking at, a, a, at an ongoing policy of dispossession, dehumanization, ethnic cleansing, and God help us, genocide. Again, you're listening to Jennifer Lowenstein. Give us a call at 608-256-2001 if you want to join with a question, a comment, an observation. Uh, we do have another caller waiting in the queue. Um, Starboy, is this the name I have here? Yeah. Someone with a question. Go ahead. Hello? Yeah, you're on the air. Yeah, uh, yeah, you did have the right name there. I just asked to go under a pseudonym. So I wanted to ask, um, we've talked about the ways that it is seemingly impossible to reach any of our elected representatives about this issue. I wanted to ask more to go at the root of it. How do we stop our finances from going to Israel on an individual level? Like, what do you think is the best recommendation for that? On an individual level, I mean, you can withhold a percentage of your taxes that would ostensibly be directed towards military spending. Uh, people have done that before. I mean, it's certainly a possibility. Um, you know, there's no question that uh, the United States gives Israel a disproportionate share of, of, of American tax dollars. Israel gets... $3.8 billion a year in military assistance. And in addition to that, Biden just, you know, insisted that $14 billion more be granted to Israel. And of course, that's that's passed. My, my question to, to listeners is, <clears throat> what is that money doing? Where is it really going? We're talking about a country whose military has been described as the fourth most powerful military on the planet. It gets, as I said, $3.8 billion a year annually. What is that money doing? Because if anyone else hasn't noticed, Israel has not been able to defeat Hamas. I mean, we're talking about a fighting force of between 15 and 20,000 men. They have no standing army, navy, marine corps, air force, nothing like that. And, you know, it's, it's you know, trained up to a point, but not to the kind of standards that the United States Armed Services is trained. So my question to, to listeners is, what's our money doing that the fourth most powerful military organization on the planet is incapable of defeating 20,000 loose lightly armed men what what's really happening here we have to ask that and people like betty mccollum and uh i believe it was bowman uh, uh bowman and um omar as well as Tlaib, they're basically saying you know we have to stop sending this kind of money to israel it violates the Leahy law in other words we're in violation of our own laws by sending military assistance to Israel because we know that it's going to be used to perpetuate gross human rights violations. And according to the Leahy law, we're not supposed to be giving any military assistance to nations who we know are violating individual and collective human rights on a, on a massive scale. So we're in violation of our own laws. That's very important. Other, other than that, you know, you can protest it and, and keep 
this is an occasion where you can go to your congresspeople and say this is not acceptable. Um, but other than that, it's, it's very hard to, to stop your tax dollars from actually going. Just ask the question, what are we paying for? Look at the bloody nose and the black eye that this little organization gave Israel. Doesn't that make people ask what's, what's really going on here? Thank you, caller. Let's continue on with uh, callers for a bit here. Hello, Dennis, you're on the line. Oh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, you know, uh, I went to a Catholic school. 1961 through the eighth grade, all my teachers were nuns that were World War II refugees, uh, German, Italian, uh, French, uh, Asian. And uh, our first grade teacher was Sister Alcantara, 100% German. And she made the comment, she said, you know, if two people are too much alike, they're either going to become the best of friends or the worst of enemies. And I know she made this comment in reference to what happened with Germany and the Jews. They are very much alike. And, you know, a guy on Facebook posted a thing that about winds of war. I, I read Walks Winds of War. And when I read it, it was probably maybe 10 years ago. And by that time, I, when I read that book, that book exactly describes that, you know, yesterday's victims become tomorrow's monsters. And, the you know, the far-right Israelis have become exactly what the Germans were when it comes to the Palestinians. Um, thank, when we left Desert thank, Storm. Thank you. Can thank I say you, one Dennis. more thing, please? Can I say something very, more? Very, very, very quickly. Uh, Estes show after we left Desert Storm we left all our military equipment in the hands of the Israelis uh, we, we didn't ship anything back and that they proceeded to take control of the aquifer in, got in the strip and thank you Dennis Dennis I'm going to have to let you go Jennifer some uh, observation comment well I, I didn't get a question um, which is fine. I, I don't know what the question was, but, you know, while I'm thinking of it, I think it's really important for me to tell listeners who are undoubtedly, whether willingly or not, hearing mainstream news and reading mainstream news. A lot is being piped into the American living room now about the Hamas bunker under Shifa Hospital, where Hamas had a, a command and control center. And I just want to tell listeners that is a lie. There is no Hamas command and control center underneath Shifa Hospital. It doesn't exist. Tens of thousands of people have gone in and out of those hospital doors over the past 17 years patients, their families, friends, visitors, vendors, journalists, probably a few Israeli spies. Nobody has ever seen any evidence of a bunker where Hamas has its command and control center. This is a bold-faced lie. It doesn't exist. But I do want to say something to that because people will say, what are they showing us on television? Well, notice on television that there is there has been no independent verification of what the Israelis are showing you on their television screens. They brought a lot of boxes into Shifa Hospital, kept everyone away from them, and also filmed a bunch of guns, which really doesn't show anything. The other thing I want to say, and I think this is really important, there are tunnels underneath Shifa Hospital. There are tunnels, basements, whatever you want to call them, under almost every major hospital ever built. That's because hospital foundations usually need that depth for their height. Also because it helps regulate temperatures. 
And the last thing that I want to point out to people is that tunnels that that do exist under Shifa were built by the Israelis in the 1980s when they still had control of the Gaza Strip. Those tunnels were built by Israel. So when Israel says it has intelligence that there is, in fact, a bunker or tunnels underneath Shifa Hospital, well, guess what? They know where it is. They know where these tunnels are because they built them. But those tunnels are not a Hamas command and control center. Every doctor that's, who has been interviewed in the last two months or month and a half has said very plainly, I've seen no evidence whatsoever of Hamas fighters inside Shifa Hospital. They're not here. The visitors are saying that. Passersby who, who stop people who are sheltering in the, in the hospital complex there, day and night, almost 60,000 people. None of these people are seeing Hamas fighters enter and exit Shifa Hospital. This is a made-up lie, and it's being fed to the American public to justify Israel's operation, which is intended to destroy Palestinian society in the Gaza Strip. Let's continue on. We're getting close, uh, again, quickly approaching the end of the hour, but I want to get another caller in. Hey, uh, David, you're on the air. Thank you, Ellen. Um, I'm David Williams. I started Palestine Solidarity work at uh, UW in 1968 while I was a Vietnam anti-war activist and continued it in Atlanta in the mid-'70s and in Chicago for 28 years at Chicago Public Library and in the community. Uh, almost cost me my job. And then in Madison, when I got early retirement, came back to Madison since uh, 2004, and I had the privilege of organizing a forum for Jennifer in 2009 at the Wilmar during an, a, a previous Gaza flare-up. Um, here's my uh, comment and question. I am very heartened after 55 years of Palestine solidarity work to see the, 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 the sentiment among the younger generation, and they and they get it, and they they know pretty much what's what the Israelis are doing in Gaza. What I see a need for is um, education in the, his, the, his, the historical background of all of this. And I'm just wondering if Jennifer, uh, hi Jennifer, if Jennifer could recommend a syllabus or a course outline or a website that people could go to to get, um, to get access to, uh, to all of those sources for the historical backstory. And, and thank you very much, Alan, and thank you much, very much, Jennifer, for, for everything here. Bye-bye. Well, I mean, there are courses that are taught on the Israel-Palestine conflict, as it's called, and I think anyone who wants to take a course on it should. Um, but I also think you should have your antenna up because many of those courses are being taught by pro-Israel people. Um, there are lots of alternative sources out there where you can read, you can get your news, you can get historical background. Middle East Eye, El Monitor, Truth Out, Common Dreams, Counterpunch. Uh, you know, they're, they're at your fingertips. Um, you can look at Arab News, which is translated into English. Um, uh, I'm trying to, I'm spacing on the, the other one, El Mayadeen, which is news out of Lebanon. There are commentators and writers, Muin Rabani, Norman Finkelstein, Sari Makdisi, Joseph Massad. I mean, there are lots of names of people who I whose work I think should be read. Um, and I can provide a list of those if if somebody wants it. You know, Jennifer Lowenstein, I, I want to get to a couple of things as, as the hour winds down. Um, the Biden administration has been alluded to. Talk about that a little bit. They're uh, a kind of green lighting of, of the Israeli operations. Uh, just recently, there's been some, some mild shift. But talk about that. Um, well, they're not kind of green lighting it. They're green lighting it. They are green lighting Israel's genocidal policies in Gaza. They are standing back. 
and watching a relentless 24-7 bombardment beyond, you know, anyone's nightmares. They're watching it. They're green lighting it. They funded it. The weaponry is is ours for to a large part. I mean, there's no question of this. the The blowback of this war, this episode in Middle Eastern history, on America, on the Biden administration, and on generations to come, is going to be pretty terrible. Biden has succeeded for the first time, probably since two thousand and seven or, or eight in making Americans less safe worldwide, and particularly in Europe and the Middle East, than anyone since George Bush. I mean, he's he's done that single-handedly by refusing outright to call for a ceasefire. And I want to just say, you know, because it's on my mind, calling for a humanitarian pause is obscene. You know, what is that? Take a few days, drink a little bit of water if you can find it, eat a little food if you have anything left, refresh yourself, ha ha, so we can bomb you again? I mean, this is, this is obscene. It's an obscenity. Already, we, UNRWA can't get fuel. Humanitarian aid organizations can't get the fuel they need to function. There's no electricity. Communications in the Gaza Strip, for anyone who's paying attention, have been knocked out. As of today, there's no fuel to bring it back. So the person that I communicate with every single day in Rafa so that I can get her diary entries and publish them, I have no way of getting in touch with her now, nor do I have any way of getting in touch with the handful of friends I had in the North who are now all living in people's houses in the South because their their homes are gone. I heard a commentator say something about, uh, how difficult it's going to be for these people from the, from the north to go back home. What home? What are they going back to? The neighborhood that I used to live in, the upscale neighborhood of Rimal, has been wiped off the face of the earth. Tell Hawa the same. They don't exist anymore. What are they supposed to go back to? This is part of a greater plan. And the plan is to destroy Gazan society more than it was already destroyed by a nearly 20-year blockade. We have time for one more caller. Adrian has been uh, waiting patiently. Adrian, hi, you're on the air. Hi, Alan. Um, Go ahead. The rate of return of war refugees is recognized by international law as a fundamental human right, yet Israel refuses consistently to allow the, uh, allow the right of return to Palestinian refugees going all the way back to ones that were run out in 1948 and their descendants. And when asked why they refused to allow the right of return of Palestinian refugees, the Israeli government officials with remarkable candor say they do it because to do so would be to uh, dilute the Jewish nature of the Israeli state. And I, I was just wondering how we can justify sending our tax dollars to such a blatant ethnic cleansing project. When you find out, let me know, but we're doing it every day. And, you know, there's no, there's no, nobody's even trying to hide behind this idea of an ethnocracy. Israel is an ethnocracy. If you're not Jewish, the nation state of Israel doesn't really represent you. I mean, their own nation state law made that clear. Land ownership laws reinforce that. Discriminatory laws, no, no right of return. All of this is very, very blatant. It continues a process of more of more and more extreme versions of Jewish supremacy. We're the ones, we're the chosen people, we're the we're the ones who who should have this land which is scary in a way. It's, I mean, it's biblical. It's also manifest destiny. I mean, there are echoes of it here in, in the United States in our own history. But yeah, you, you can't let Palestinians back into a Jewish, Jewish state because it's demographically too threatening. Israel doesn't want non-Jews. The demographic threat posed by Palestinians is far too great. I got a late caller coming in, uh, 
Sergio, hello, you're on the air. Got a few more minutes left. Yes, thank you for the show, Alan. Jennifer, I have a question for you. Can you speak to the connection between the United States and Israel and the Judeo-Christian uh, idea that there's going to be a second coming of Christ there, and, and is that land is so important to that idea. Yeah, um, Christian Zionism is not a new phenomenon. It goes way back in a tradition of philo-Semitism, especially in England. Uh, Arthur Balfour was one of these people who believed having Jews return to Israel was, you know, something biblically foreordained. It's no secret um, that Christian evangelicals like to see Jews return to the land. You know, it's very biblical. And again, I think having the Bible mixed in with modern politics is very dangerous. It has to do with um, the whole issue, again, of manifest destiny, the second coming. I mean, it's all very frightening. And I want to point out to listeners a very curious change in 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 the United States attitudes towards Israel 40 years ago 30 years ago the main supporters of Israel the the bedrock of support came from liberal democrats today the real strongholds of Israel's support come from within the most reactionary groups in the United States the radical right Christian evangelicals, Christian Zionists, you know, you, you find it in the most reactionary places. And that should say a lot, not only about what's happening there, but what's happening here in the United States. You know, and of course, Jennifer, part, there are elements of that far right in the United States that you did just described that are also anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. so. Well, and it's, it's, it's too bad in a way. The whole issue of anti-Semitism is one that could take up an hour of time. I mean, there is anti-Semitism in the world, which is, you know, hatred of Jews because they're Jews, uh, because they are Jews. I personally don't see much of that. But every time one criticizes Israel or criticize, criticizes uh, U.S.-Israel policy, you know, they're, they're accused of being anti-Semitic, and that's not anti-Semitism. But you're talking about the Christian Zionists, uh, Christian evangelicals, who want to see the Jews return to the Holy Land because it will presage the second coming in which a few Jews will accept Christ and be saved and the rest will be damned to eternity. I mean, that's, that's fairly anti-Semitic. So, yeah, I mean, the Christian Zionists are really not our allies, even if Netanyahu does want to take take millions of dollars from them for his Bible park around the, the Galilee. I mean, this politics makes strange be bedfellows, is the quote. It's, it's disgusting. Uh, and, of course, anti-Semitism has been a cudgel. Uh, With which to meet anyone who dares open their mouth and say that what's unfolding in the Gaza Strip is a horrible, abominable crime. You say that, and suddenly you're a Hamas supporter. Suddenly you're an anti-Semite. Suddenly you're a self-hating Jew, watching 5,000 children die under the bombs. When you point out that that is unspeakable, and it's in the tragic and horrible nature in which it's happening, you're anti-Semitic? And, and of course, uh, I wonder if you've been following the uh, stories that are uh, coming fast, fast and furiously uh, of the banning and censuring of pro-Palestinian groups on various u university campuses, in including, interestingly, uh, campus branches of Jewish Voice for Peace. Yeah. It's scary. I mean, we're, we're clearly in a very McCarthyist age when people are losing their jobs or getting their support knocked out from underneath them because they come out in favor of a ceasefire, because they come out and say, you know, you're not supposed to oppress a people for 75 years. I'm working on an event this weekend. Rashida Tlaib is coming to Phoenix, Arizona to give a talk. Um, you know, she was scheduled to do have a huge banquet in uh, Mesa, if 
by CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, at the Sheraton Hotel. The Sheraton pulled the plug on it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do it because Tlaib is a hateful anti-Semite. The same thing happened in Houston uh, about a month ago where the U U.S.-Palestine campaign conference was planned at a Hilton in Houston. And days before the conference, the, the hotel pulled a plug on it citing the security needs of their staff. I mean, what what hotel, what institution would do that if it was a Jewish group? It's scary. It's really scary. You know, Jennifer, we have, oh, say, uh, two, two, three minutes to go here. What, have we, what haven't we touched on? How would, how would we sum up here? Well, maybe the likelihood of organizations like Hezbollah entering the war. I mean, up to a point, I mean, we have to look at what's happening globally or regionally. Um, I think if Israel crosses red, certain red lines, we'll see even more involvement. Hezbollah, of course, doesn't want to see Beirut turned into the Stone Age. And let's face it, Benny Gantz of the Labour Party of the left has basically informed Lebanon that, and Yoav Gallant, the current defense minister, that they'll do to, to Beirut and Lebanon what they're doing to Gaza if they dare you know, enter the war any, any more deeply. It's the regional implications of this uh, bomb bombardment and war on Gaza are enormous. I mean, the the absolute hatred of America, of its government, is is blossoming again all over the place. And for good reason. You know, we've destroyed Iraq. We've helped destroy Syria. <laughs> I mean, we're... we're We've managed to hurt the Iranian public in terrible ways because of our sanctions. Uh, we're not a very popular nation in most of the rest of the world. And Israel is pretty much the same. The United States and Israel are together becoming pariah states. And our leaders are, uh, you know, reinforcing that. Well, I want to, you know, take, take this moment to thank you very much, uh, Always have enjoyed, uh, gotten a lot out of uh, having you on, and I'm sure many of our listeners have as well. You've been listening to Middle East observer, lecturer, writer, author, uh, and activist Jennifer Lowenstein. Um, I want to thank Jade for helping to produce today and Jack for engineering. I want to thank you, our callers, and our listeners. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that will never be reported. District of the main...